So turn with me, if you're not already aware of where we are, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, where we have been for a number of weeks uh, in preparation really for our Vision Sunday. That's really where how this has come about. And uh, for those who are wondering, we will continue through the book of Philippians uh, in due course, uh, beginning again in chapter 3, but that will be uh, a little ways off while we have a few uh, weeks uh, intermission from that as we consider some other things. But First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, if you would just read that verse together as I do uh, here in preparation for what the Lord have for us today. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. For the past three weeks, we have been systematically working through 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. Uh, we've already considered how speech, conduct and love form characteristics of a model Christian. If you're not aware of where we have come from, um, I'd encourage you to see Haley, get a copy of those messages so that you can catch up with us. But today we are looking specifically at the subject of faith and how this virtue, faith, forms an integral part of every Christian's life. And may I say, as I have prepared this message this is a far greater topic than I even realised and I have the privilege of studying the word every week. This is a mammoth topic. So have a look at the time, just so you know when I finish and start. Um, but we're going to spend some time looking at this matter of faith. I want you to remember the context though. It's been a few weeks since I read the whole chapter and, and the book of Timothy to us. The context is that Paul is instructing Timothy, his young son in the faith, who's just taken on the pastoring at the church at Ephesus there. And he says, be an example to those believers in that place, in your care, the ones who you pastor, that you might dismiss any notion that they might think you are young or immature or unsuitable for the task. Prove yourself, is what Paul says to Timothy, by these things. Nobody is going to look down upon you if you are going to live out the reality of an example in speech, conduct, love, faith and purity, is what Paul says. And even though this text is directed specifically to the pastor of that place, the whole of Scripture points to the fact that this and these elements are to be true for every Christian, not just for those in leadership. This matter of faith is largely misunderstood in church today. The goal of the message, if there is a premise, if there's a goal, a thesis, is simply this, to adequately define faith in biblical terms and then discuss how faith forms an indispensable part of our Christian testimony and example. Join me this morning as I preach a message entitled The Characteristics of a Model Christian, Part 3. Characteristics of a Model Christian, Part 3. Uh, Lord, as we, as we commence our time in the word by way of exposition. We've already read a number of places and been confronted with uh, your word in song and uh, in testimony. But now as we would spend some concentrated time seeking to understand the truths revealed here, we pray for your help, for your wisdom, that the Holy Spirit would illuminate to us great truth. Uh, Lord, we realize that uh, if, it's, uh, if we are left to our own devices, we can perform nothing of any great spiritual work, no lasting prevailing work uh, except that which is done by the Spirit of God. And so, Lord, we uh, we look to you, uh, we turn our attention to you, if it's not already, and ask that you would minister to us, divide uh, the truths here amongst us uh, as you see fit, making application uh, in individual lives. Help us to understand this great matter of faith uh, today uh, in the short time that we have together. May you be glorified uh, and may we uh, be encouraged and built up in our most holy faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, instead of individual points that are alliterated and so forth, I have just five questions that we're going to answer. And the very first question which form our points is simply this. What is faith? What is faith? 
Let me summarise some popular cultural and historical definitions and notions before I present the biblical truth about faith. So, firstly, what I did is I took the English word and went to the Oxford Dictionary like I did last week with the matter of love. And this is what I came up with. The Oxford Dictionary tells us that faith is reliance or trust. Secondly, it is a firm, especially religious belief, not based on proof. Third, it is a system of religious belief, that is, the Christian faith. Or fourth, a promise, loyalty or sincerity. That's what the dictionary in English defines this word of faith, Marseille, that is extremely lacking when we come to the biblical concept of faith. And then I thought, well, let's do an internet search, and that's always very interesting, to uh, find out what does the world have to say about this matter of faith. And so why not go to uh, what some would consider the greatest mind of our time, a man by the name of Richard Dawkins. Uh, I've read his book, The God Delusion, and let me, uh, he's an ethologist. I had to look up what that was. Uh, and an evolutionary biologist who established the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science, which recently merged with the Centre for Inquiry. He is one of the world's most respected scientists who defines his purpose as one who promotes free thought and one who is intent on the secularisation of America. He says that. That's his goal. His disdain for God and all organised religion is well noted. This is what he says. Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Now, the greatest mind of our time, so-called, or at least one of them, that is how Richard Dawkins, a God-hater, speaks of faith. An interesting group that I had not been aware of previously to this is a group called Better Off Damned. Can you believe you'd call yourself that? This is a group of atheists who collaborate together to eradicate religious irrationality and the intrinsic harm it causes. They espouse that not only can they be good without God, but rather their disbelief enables them to be better is what they say. This is their definition of faith. Faith is the excuse we give ourselves to believe something when there is no other reason to. Faith is the excuse we give ourselves to believe something when there's no other reason to. We are going to get to biblical truth in a moment. One other, another God-hating individual who uh, died in 2011, who would be familiar to many of us, Christopher Hitchens, a journalist and religious and literary critic who died in 2011. He's the author of the book that I've read, God is Not Great, and a major advocate for the new atheism movement, which promotes, again, the secularisation of culture by abandoning all religious teaching, promoting humanism, psychology, anti-theism, and this is what he has to say. And to be honest... You need to sort of read it to really get it, but let me read it out to you. Faith is the surrender of the mind. It's the surrender of the only thing that makes us different from other animals. It's our need to believe and surrender our scepticism our scepticism and our reason, our yearning to discard that and put all our trust and faith in something or someone. That is sinister to me. Out of all the virtues, all the supposed virtues, faith must be the most overrated. The general consensus on the internet was this, culture and the world define the faith of a Christian as this, an irrational belief and one that cannot be tested. That's what the world thinks. That's what the dictionary thinks. That's what the culture says about faith. So here's the question, what is biblical faith? Because we need to remember, we do not take our cues from culture, do we? We do not take our cues from what we see around us and even what we read and even the, the brightest so-called minds of uh, this age. We don't take our cues from them. We take our cues from the unchanging, sufficient scripture that is breathed out by God for our learning and our understanding. What does the Bible say about faith? 
Well, you probably have already thought about it, but turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, where we have given to us the only passage in the whole Bible that explicitly defines faith. What is biblical faith? Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 1. In the ESV translation, this is what the scripture says. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, Another translation has provided this reading. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So let me just give you a quick overall summary and then we're going to really launch into this concept in just a moment. The word faith, the Greek word pistis, is used over 200 times in the New Testament. And it has the idea of belief, of trust, confidence, persuasion and reliance. All synonyms and words that we would use interchangeably, but we really need to get to not just the definition of the word and the term, but the overall meaning right throughout the scripture. It's really important that we begin with this premise. Faith is not what the culture says. Faith is not a wistful longing based largely upon a personal desire or a dream of mine. It's not a futile hope that something is going to come to pass in a nebulous tomorrow. Faith is an absolute, utter certainty yet to be revealed in its fullness. Faith is simply making a present substance out of a future reality. Let me say that again. Faith is simply making a present substance out of a future reality. Let me give you an example of it in my own life. Some of you, I hope, know this. I've never been to heaven By the way, contrary to what Kurong books tell us, people do not go to heaven and come back, by the way, just as a side footnote there. And there is a lot of talk about people going to hell and going to heaven and coming back. Scripture tells us that's not true. But I have never been to heaven. I cannot tangibly prove to you at this moment its existence. I can't say, see, here it is. See, there it is. And yet, I have spent countless hours walking down that golden street, worshipping before the Lamb's throne, singing with the throng of redeemed ones and observing every prism and jewel in that blessed land through the eyes of faith. Now, it would be wrong for me to say I have been to heaven in a real sense. But let me say to you, I have been to heaven through the eyes of faith, through the lens of scripture, and I have in my mind walked down that street of gold. I have been there with the seraphims and the cherubims and, and watched them through the pages of scripture bow down in their absolute majesty and awe before the King of Kings as he resides on that throne. I've, I've witnessed the new Jerusalem through the pages of scripture, not in some uh, fantasy or vision, but through the eyes and the lens of faith. And those of you who are saved this morning, you know what I mean. You know that there is a present reality of a future thing that is going to come, but we are not just hopeful, we know it. It is an utter certainty that this reality is going to come to pass, so much so that it is a reality for us now, even though we are not there. You say, that seems a little bit far-fetched. Have you got proof on that? I'm so glad you asked that question. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, if you would, please. I want to show you how the Apostle Paul, really quickly, again, just answering this question about what is faith, look at what the Apostle Paul has to say here. I'm going to stop myself from reading the whole chapter because Ephesians 2 is just an incredible passage. But look, please, with me in verse 4. Ephesians 2 and verse 4. After Paul has told us what we are outside of Christ, our depraved state, and in verse 4 he says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Please note verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You need to note something. Paul says when you are saved in the present tense, you are seated in the heavenly places. 
Now, last time I checked, I'm not presently seated in heavenly places. You are not presently physically seated in heavenly places right now. And on the face of it, this seems absurd. On the face of it, this seems like some sort of contradiction here. And yet, you know what Paul is saying? So emphatically, so sure, so uh, so aware am I of this present hope that I can tell you even now through the eyes of faith, you are seated in heavenly places, though not yet fulfilled in its fullness. Paul uses language that describes this matter of faith. It's a future reality. We know that because we're not there yet. And yet it is a present truth that he would claim right there in Ephesians chapter 2. We see the same thing in the past tense quite often. In Romans chapter 8, you recall uh, at the end of that passage, it says that uh, he justified and he sanctified and he glorified. We've not been glorified yet. We've not reached that place of perfection. And yet it's a completed event in Paul's mind because of the eyes of faith that will shortly bring that to pass. See the picture? You understand what faith is in that sense? So here's the definition. And let me tell you, it took me about three hours this morning mainly to really get my head around what I felt would be a, and this is not a satisfactory um, definition of faith, but this is what I have come to as the overall picture of faith. Faith is the firm, objective, life-changing persuasion that God, though unseen, is all that he says he is and can be trusted implicitly. I'll say that again. Faith is the firm, objective, life-changing persuasion that God, though unseen, is all that he says he is and can be trusted implicitly. Now, that's weak at best, folks, because it's produced by me. That's weak. Faith is so much more than I could ever put into a sentence. But that gives us an indication after careful study as to what this matter of faith, what is faith? We talk about this word faith and and, and all the implications and ramifications and applications and and all of that. How does it all work? Well, it's a really hard thing to define in its fullness. But then we have to talk about not just faith in the general, what about saving faith? Faith that converts a lost, depraved sinner into the place where they enter into the kingdom of God in the kingdom of life. What is saving faith? Well, I've got an even longer definition for that one and you probably won't have time to write it down, but let me just read it out to you. Saving faith, therefore, is that personal encounter with divine truth which enlists my total reliance upon the personhood and work of Jesus Christ for sin, resulting in a permanent change in my behaviour by the power of the Holy Spirit. You got all that? (laughs) Saving faith, therefore, is that personal encounter with divine truth which enlists my total reliance upon the personhood and work of Jesus Christ for my sin, resulting in a permanent change in my behaviour by the power of the Holy Spirit. Very important you get this next distinction. Faith is not simply understanding and believing the facts of Scripture. Someone says, say what? That doesn't sound right. James 2.19 says, For even the demons believe and tremble. Even being moved by a portion of Scripture is not proof of saving faith for no demon, no devil is truly saved, can ever be saved and yet they know the Scripture better than all of us put together and are moved by it. So it is also the application of that information. It's not simply enough to know it and believe that that what that says is true. It is how that has gone ahead and changed your life forever. Let me say this as we conclude this first question of what is faith. Faith involves two things. Faith involves intellectual assent. What I mean by that is it involves knowledge. It involves information and data. No problem, we must have information and data. But faith does not stop there. Faith is then the total dependence upon that for salvation. 
See, the devils, the demons, the world have intellectual information about this book. Intellectual information about Jesus Christ. Many believe that truly Jesus existed, truly He died, truly He rose again. But that in itself is not sufficient until I place absolutely all my reliance, I stake and venture my eternity on that fact. That is when faith becomes more than just an ascent of knowledge. That's the difference. And today we have a myriad of people on the church membership role in churches everywhere that have an ascent of knowledge but do not have faith. God rescue us from having people here who simply know some truth but don't know it. Don't really know. Have never truly depended fully upon the fact that Jesus died and rose again for sin and He is my only hope. He's the only way of salvation. God rescue us from just believing the intellectual aspects of this message of salvation. So what is faith? I hope that gives you a little bit of a summary from which we can launch. Secondly, second question, second point, and this is really important. Where does faith originate? Where does faith come from? Now, let me just give you a quick summary here, and I believe you'll understand and know this already, but faith, in a general sense, belief systems and so forth, is in every person. Every single person on the planet, every person born has some aspect and element of faith. They rely on something. It cannot be extinguished. It's part of the human nature. There is faith there. And faith must always have an object. And that object's dependability is validated when it is put to the test. Let me explain what I mean by that with some examples. Perhaps this will help us. The businessman, you know the picture. The businessman's faith is exercised when he invests every last dollar in that share market. That's an aspect of faith. He says, I have this pool of money here and I'm going to stake everything I have by way of money onto that shares or that portfolio or or that broker. That's an aspect of faith. His faith is in that share market, which is not very wise. But nonetheless, that's where his faith is at. The builder completes his job. He builds that second story balcony and his faith is exercised when he opens that door and walks out on it and realises it works. I'm not going to fall through. The faith of that builder is exercised. The poker player. You know, to talk about poker in church? I'm not sure. Anyway, the poker player's faith is exercised when in his hand he has his cards and he stakes all of those chips, puts them into the middle and says, I'm all in, and then lays his cards down. That's his faith exercised. I've got the best hand here. That's the faith. The ice skater that surveys an area and says there's a safe place for me to really do it in a natural uh, a natural place and that frozen lake is going to hold me up. And so that ice skater goes out onto that lake and trusts the validity and the integrity of that ice to hold him or her up. You see the picture? When a sinner, when a lost individual is confronted with divine truth about God, that knowledge, that information will be met with one of two responses. Doubt and scepticism which comes from within the depraved heart or faith which is implanted by God and will cause that individual to venture an eternity on that which has been revealed. One of two things happens today for those who are lost in sin in our midst here. Either one thing which is from your own heart which says, no, I will not believe that, scepticism, doubt enters from within, or God, but in His grace, implants within you a faith that comes from Him that says, yes, I will believe this, and not only will I believe it, I will stake my eternity on this, because this is the greatest truth in all the world. And at that moment, you have salvation take place. Faith becomes a reality. But we need to understand, faith does not begin with us. 
There is nothing good in us. I don't have the ability in and of myself to believe. I am dead, Ephesians chapter 2 says. I'm dead in my sin. I have darkness in every place. It is not unless an alien faith, the old Puritans used to call it, an alien faith that comes from God is provided in my very soul for me to believe. You say, is there proof for that? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, let me read you that passage that we know so well. For by grace you have been saved through faith, through this faith. And it is not your own doing. Faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of the works you do, because if it were, you and I would boast, Paul says. Now, let me tell you, there are all sorts of theological positions on this Uh, Some people would say the gift of God is His grace. Some people would say the gift of God is faith. Some would say the gift of God is salvation. May I say in careful study that the gift of God is all of them. All of them. Everything in that verse is the gift of God. The grace that is given in order for you to be saved is a gift of God. The faith that is given in order for you to trust and believe in Him is a gift. And the salvation, the totality of that is a gift given by God. It's all a gift. And Paul, of all the people in the New Testament, Paul says, who was a blasphemer and a persecutor, you remember that? He says in 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy, Paul says, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. It's how this happened, Paul says. I was this, I was a persecutor. I hated all things that related to this person, Jesus Christ. And I thought I was doing God a favour by ridding the world of these Christians. And yet the faith of God entered into my heart and I trusted in that Jesus on the road to Damascus. The Corinthians were known to be proud, Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7. And this is an important verse, please note this. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, he says this, Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You say, well, well, what's he talking about? He's talking about a whole lot of things, but we can most certainly say that faith is one of those things. What have you got that you did not give, that you were not given? What have you got that you did not receive? What is it that you have been given by God that was yours? It's not yours. It was always his. Saving faith, that which produces a total and complete dependence on Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, is entirely a gift of God on our behalf. Let me say this to us, it's really important. No amount of logic, no amount of reason, moral acquiescence, No emotive manipulation will produce faith. It is a gift. You say, why does that matter? It matters a great deal because in today's culture, we have people all over the place telling us that we need to go around and seek the sinner which is true and preach the gospel which is true and we need to provide them with the means of conversion. That is not true. We are not called to convert people. We are called to preach the gospel And God in His sovereign plan will provide the faith for them at the right time if we use His means, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But to to try somehow to uh, engage or, or manipulate someone to a place of faith will never work. In fact, what it will do is the opposite. It will create a false convert who thinks they are saved, who believes that, and then they go away after just a short amount of time having been involved in church. They're disappointed and they're sad because it hasn't worked out the way you said it was going to work and they're never seen again. And you wonder why there's so many false converts. We've got to stop trying to promote faith in people and preach the gospel. Let God do the work with your children, with those rebellious ones, with those those friends, those neighbours, those work colleagues. Preach the gospel. Be an example in word, in conduct, in love, in faith, in, uh, in purity and let them see in you that reality. Preach the word. But do not try to make them believe something because that is the work of the Spirit of God. And to do that is for me to rob His glory, to rob His job. I don't want to be guilty of that. I want to let the Lord work as He sees fit. I want to be faithful with what He's called me to do. And that is not to try 
to convert. Now, let me just say as a word of warning, though, we can go the other side. And that is that we say, well, God's going to do it all. It's his job. That's not right. That's not right. We are not hyper-Calvinists which suggest that, well, you know what, I can just put my feet up and enjoy the ride because God's going to save who he's going to save. The Bible tells us that we are called to be a light. We are told to preach the gospel to every creature. It is our responsibility. And it's not just a duty, it's an absolute privilege, a joy that we would be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. But don't think the results reside in you and I. They do not. But the message does. And so we preach the message faithfully and leave the work of faith with God. Where does faith come from? Saving faith comes from God. I can't believe that was only point two. (laughs) Point number three, here is the question. What is the means of faith? What is the means of faith? Since we've said faith cannot be produced in another, I can't produce faith in you, I can't confer faith to you, how then is faith fashioned? And this is my heart's cry. I love the answer to this question. God's divine means of producing faith is in the scripture. Romans chapter 10, please turn there. I want to make sure that you see this and don't just simply believe what I say to be true because I'm saying it. I want you to see it in the very pages of scripture. Romans chapter 10 and looking in verse 17. Familiar passage. I won't give you all the context right now, but please read through the rest of Romans 10, an incredible portion of Scripture. But here is what we note in verse 17. How is faith produced? What's the means of faith? Verse 17, Paul says this, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The concept, this term, the word of Christ, is the teaching and the good news of salvation which is exclusively set out in the pages of the Bible. The word of Christ may be heard during a sermon like now. The word of Christ may be seen and heard through someone's private reading of the word of God. The word of Christ will be communicated any time the true gospel is spoken to another. So you get the picture here? We want to help people know the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. We want them to understand and believe that's our heart's cry. I hope it's your heart's cry. My desire is that if there would be those here today that know not Christ, that today by the power of the Spirit of God they would have faith implanted within their heart that they might believe. That's my great desire as I preach the word this morning. But I recognise this, that faith comes from hearing and hearing of the word. It doesn't matter about my illustrations. That's not going to affect your faith. It doesn't matter about my my personal ideas or interpretations. What matters is the word of God. That is what is going to produce faith in an individual. And the Bible makes it very, very clear. In fact, there's a few examples here for you to consider. We won't turn there. You remember in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, Remember what was happening? He was there in his chariot having been uh, up to Jerusalem and he's reading from Isaiah, where? Chapter 53. And there he reads about what's going on there and, and Philip, the Lord, the Spirit tells Philip to go join to his chariot. He says, what are you reading? He says, I'm reading the scripture. Well, that's a great start. And he explains to him all that relates to Jesus Christ. And in that instant, that Ethiopian eunuch is converted from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and is a few moments later at the water side saying, here's baptismal water. Why can't I be baptized? And uh, Philip says, you can, you can. Faith has entered into your heart. The scriptures were the means of that faith being placed there. And what about on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands before a myriad of people and he begins to preach from a number of passages including Joel and 3,000 souls are cut to the heart and exercise faith in response to the preaching of God's word. One that you may not have thought about before and let me just briefly mention it because this is crucial. 
In Luke chapter 16, the only place in the whole scripture, the Lord Jesus gives a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. And you remember that story? The rich man dies and goes to hell and there's a picture there. And There's a lot of theological ramifications I'm not going to go into now, but this is interesting. At the end of that portion of scripture, you remember the rich man says to Abraham, I have five brethren. I have five brethren who know not these truths would you send Lazarus to them because if he goes back to them from the dead, they will surely believe. And Abraham says to the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets. Do you know what Abraham and the Lord Jesus in using that parable was saying? It doesn't matter whether someone comes back from the dead, that's not going to convince anybody. One thing is going to convince these people of the uh, the reality of hell and the reality of, of eternity, it's this, the Word of God. That is what is going to be... And, and the rich man says, well, th- th- they won't believe it. He says, if they believe not Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe someone who comes back from the dead. The miracle was not the point, the Word of God was the point. You say, why are we so focused as a church on scriptural exposition? It's because if we get a handle on this, this produces faith for the lost to be saved, but it also produces further ongoing greater faith for us as a Christian. And we say, Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord says, here's the answer. Get into the book because this is the book of faith. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13, immediately after our text This is what Paul says to Timothy. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. And we want to be faithful to that here. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1.23, Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Peter says, the Word of God is that seed that produces life. In other words, this is the means of faith. As we are immersed, as we are confronted with the truths of Scripture, the Lord will do a work of faith. So therefore, it is critical. The summary, the thesis of that point is this. It is critical that the Scripture is central in all that we do privately, and publicly. This must be centrepiece. This must be the focus because it's God's divine means of communicating truth and establishing faith in the heart of a person. Point number four. Only one to go. You're doing well. So all of that is uh, summations, questions, but here's a question that really begins to get to the heart of this matter. This is the question, what is the purpose and work of faith. What's the purpose? What's the work? What does it accomplish? What does it achieve? I want to summarise in the next few moments the purpose and work of faith as it's revealed in the Scriptures. And looking at what's in front of me, I'm going to have to fly through it because the next point has a few sub-points. But then you're used to that. First thing I want you to note about the purpose and work of faith. Faith pleases God and is the means of knowing God. Faith pleases God and is the means of knowing God. Hebrews 11.6, without faith. If you are void of this faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. King James says those who diligently seek him. Faith pleases God. That's a good reason to exercise faith and it is also the means of knowing God. I'm going to have to keep moving. Number two, faith is the means of our justification. I'm not jumping past this one too quick though. This is really important. We talk about this all the time. You know that word justification. You know that theological term. It means this, to be declared righteous. It's not just as if I never sinned like the the coined phrase today. That's not really quite right. It is the concept. It's a judicial concept. It is that you have sinned. You are guilty. You are uh, in your sin. You are depraved. You have no hope in yourself. But in spite of that, because of Jesus Christ, you are declared righteous by faith. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Galatians 2.16 says the same thing in in essence, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law through faith, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, to be declared righteous. What a thought. That we are declared righteous by faith. Number three. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us by faith. Philippians 3 and verse 9, Paul says, And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, it's not coming from me, it's not that which comes from the law, which he knows so well, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You say, how does that all work? It's a simple concept, although it is an incredibly complex concept at the same time. It's simply this, that my sin is imputed to Christ. It's credited to his account. He did no sin, nor was he ever guilty of ever doing anything wrong, the sinless son of God, and yet my sin is imputed to him on the cross of Calvary as he stretches his arms and says, it is finished, my sin is imputed to him. And at the moment of faith, at the moment of justification, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to me. It's like a, I am, I'm in totally in debt, I'm bankrupt, and the funds of Jesus Christ, all of the good things, all that he is, is imputed to my account here and now I am richer than any king on all the earth spiritually because Jesus Christ has imputed his perfect righteousness to me. You see, there is no hope for any individual before God the Father to stand in purity and holiness except through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That must form an absolute uh, foundational truth in our gospel preaching. You can't do it. And if you can't do it, then how can it be done? It can't be unless the perfect substitute imputes to us his righteousness. Oh, the thought of imputation. You know, the Puritans I was reading the other day, again, reminded the Puritans, those who just love the word so much and were so immersed in it, they would come to the doctrine of imputation and their eyes would well with tears. That a wretch such as I should have all the righteousness of Christ. Not some, not part but everything about him, his goodness and his holiness credited to my account, how unworthy are we? And we access that imputed righteousness by faith. Number four, faith is founded and perfected in Jesus Christ. We read it before, Lucas read it for us, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, looking to Jesus, no one else, we're not looking anywhere else. We're not looking to Buddha. We're not looking to uh, Islam. We're not looking to Allah. We're not looking to uh, Mary Edda Baker. We're not looking to any of these other so-called uh, prophets or apostles. We are looking to one individual, God incarnate, the person of Jesus Christ, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He began it. And he completed it. It's all his. Don't think for a moment that salvation is completed by you in any way at all. It's been done in the person of Jesus Christ, the author, the finisher, the the founder and the perfecter. Uh, The the last thing under this point that I I just want to note really quickly, what's the purpose and work of faith? Faith in God affects great change. People say things like faith changes things. And it's true. Faith in God affects great change. And again, we we don't have the time to look these up, but let me just give you a couple of biblical illustrations here. Where faith, absolute faith, absolute reliance and confidence in God resulted in great change. Hebrews 11, we just read, I don't know how many characters in there, that speak about what God has done because those have had faith in God as believers. But how about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? How about these three Jewish boys who I believe are probably teenagers? 
They've been taken into captivity and there they are given an opportunity to, uh, to get somewhere in the land. All they have to do is bow down. They've just got to bow down to this idol. That's all they have to do. It's not a big call and they will be just like the rest of the crowd. And yet these teenage boys say, no, we will not do that. You can do whatever you want to us, Nebuchadnezzar. You can kill us if, the, if that's what God wants you to do. But we will not bow down to your idol nor do homage to it. We have faith in our God. Our God doesn't permit that. Though all the rest of the Jews are doing that, and by the way, they are. They're bowing, they're, they're doing that. And yet, here are three young men who say, no, we're not doing that. Our faith is in God. And God, in His sovereignty, decides to spare their lives in a miraculous way. Can you imagine? Stoke that fire up seven times more and people on the outside are getting burned alive here. And here's, here, I would just love to be a fly on the wall in Nebuchadnezzar's place, that palace that day, and just see, throw them in and there they are dancing in the fire. See, dancing is allowed for Christians. But they're, they're dancing in the fire and, and there's one in there with the likeness like the Son of Man, the Bible says. Like the Son of God. Now, I believe that that was Jesus Christ. Some people have differences of opinion, that's fine. Whether or not that is or it's an angel, it doesn't really matter at this point in time, but here's what happens. They're in that fire, they come out. And can you imagine, Nebuchadnezzar looking at them, what is going on? Nobody's ever gone into this fire before and been dancing in it, let alone surviving. And they're walking around the fire and out they come and they don't even smell smoke. I mean, that story just really, oh, just makes you want to jump in the fire, doesn't it? Not really. But you know that that faith in God performed incredible things. And it's not always that way. How many martyrs have died at the stake? It's God's business. But faith affects change. We need to be very careful. Just because you have great faith in God doesn't mean he's going to rescue you. That's not the point of what I'm saying. But we do know that faith affects great change. What about the woman with the discharge of blood? Matthew 9:22. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now, God doesn't always choose to heal people. He doesn't always choose to do that, but faith will always be the means of when he does do that. So when someone is rescued by faith, a physical ailment, that has come about by faith. But don't think like the faith healing movement today suggests that just because uh, you know you are not healed, you mustn't have had faith. That's not necessarily true. But if you are healed, it is because of faith. What about the lame man at the gate? Beautiful, Acts 3.16. Uh, Peter says, by faith in his name, Jesus, this man was made strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Incredible. I'd love to have seen the fig tree. Matthew 21, 18 to 22. In the morning as he was returning to the city, the Lord Jesus became hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, may fruit never grow upon you again. And the fig tree withered at once. I mean, I often thought, poor, poor fig tree. But what an incredible miracle. What an incredible circumstance. And then what happens next, uh, once the fig tree is withered, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, we need to pause for a moment. I don't know too many Christians who've sent mountains into seas. That's not the point. The point is not, okay, cool, I can go around cursing fig trees. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the the reality of faith that is in the heart of a believer. Exercise will do incredible things. That's the way God works. And the, the funny thing about it that always amazes me is that it's never been about us anyway. It's always about his will, but yet he has in his sovereignty confined himself to work when we exercise faith. That blows my mind. He can just do it. And yet he says, you have faith and then I'll do it. Not because it's us, but because in his sovereignty he has said, I will do it when you exercise the faith I've commanded. That blows my mind. We can talk about faith like a grain of mustard. We can talk about the prayer of faith in James chapter 5 and verse 15 and so on. There are so many examples, but we don't have time. But faith affects great change. Now I'll get into the message. Point number five and the final point for us this morning, which is really what we have come to. This is the point. All of that is preparatory and introductory to this concept that we will finish in five minutes. How 
Here's the question. How then can I be an example in faith? Because Paul says to Timothy, be an example in, in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith. So we know what it is now. We've seen how it works. We've seen what the point of it is. But now, how can I be that example? And you'll be pleased to know there's only 13. But we'll be very quick. What does it look like? Paul tells Timothy that this kind of faith that we're talking about is that which is unshakable. It's a confidence in God. And so how do we do that? How can I be an example to you? How can you be an example to me in this realm of faith? Here's a few things for you to consider. Exercise, number one, total dependence upon the Lord. Nobody ever got saved without exercising total and complete dependence upon the Lord. Nobody ever did. It it costs everything. It calls for everything within us. It calls for every aspect of our will to place faith that's given by God in God and it can only be done by that means. But it is the call for absoluteness. But what happens a lot of the time is we exercise total faith in the Lord and then as a Christian we begin to withdraw. We begin to trust our own means. We begin to, to trust people. We begin to trust the pastor. We begin to trust other things. And if we trust in anything other than God supremely, it will fail. It will fail. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Don't let it rest in men. Don't trust in men. Don't trust in the arm of the flesh. Don't trust in anything other than exercising total and complete dependence upon the Lord. Our newsletter was chosen with purpose. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. Don't trust your heart. Your heart is fickle. It fails. It's wrong. It it will tell you all kinds of lies. Trust in the Lord. You say, how does that play out in the church of Jesus Christ? Well, can you imagine a group of people who are coming together to fellowship week by week, day by day, whatever we do, and we're all doing one thing and that is exercising total dependence upon the Lord for everything. We're not trusting in our wallets. We're not trusting in our finances. We're not trusting in our vehicles or our share portfolios. We're not trusting in our houses and our lands and our friends and our family. We're trusting supremely and solely in Jesus Christ for absolutely everything. Number two, live day to day by faith. Maybe I should say moment by moment. That would be better. Live moment by moment by faith. See, this is what I find amazing and sometimes we, we uh, condense and minimise the gospel to this, this, uh, this little message that says, well, faith is required for you to be saved in the aspect of being justified and, and that you would be uh, set apart and so forth and called out from the world. But we don't realise that every moment of our Christian experience is to be lived out by faith. Every single moment. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. Listen to this. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's not talking simply about that conversion experience. He's saying my life is lived out in faith moment by moment. Every day I am living out faith. He says that's the only sustaining power I have to live out this Christian life in faith. Number three, we need to regularly evaluate the reality of our faith. Second Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. One thing I'd love to see us do, more so as a church, if I can just share my heart, would be for us to confront one another in love about conversion, about faith. So tell me, brother, tell me, sister, how do you know? How are you certain? How are you venturing an eternity on the fact that you truly have faith in God? Not just the knowledge, the data and the information, but the life-changing truth that has affected your behaviour for all eternity. It'd be great to see us mingle and and say, hey, look, would you share your testimony? Would you examine my faith? Would you tell me, brother, sister, is there anything you see in me that makes you wonder, hey, is this the real thing? Is this the genuine thing? Is this the refined faith that Paul talks about? Or am I living a lie? We have a responsibility to one another 
to challenge each other regarding the reality of faith. Evaluate. Number four. Number four. Oh, I thought I'd skipped one then. It's okay. Number four. Resist the devil through faith. You know, the Bible tells us that in all circumstances, Ephesians 6.16, take up the shield of faith. And that shield of faith, that putting on of that faith, that's not salvation faith, that's practical faith, that's everyday faith. Put on the faith and you'll extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. In fact, First Peter says something similar in chapter 5 verse 9, resist him, the devil, firm in your faith. Resist him. Your faith will bring about a resistance in the spiritual battle. Again, I'm just going to skip through these. We need to finish. Number five, pray in faith. Matthew 21:22. And whatsoever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Do you pray with faith? If you do not, if you do not pray in faith, here's something for you to think about. You are sinning. Say, what? Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. You come before the omnipotent, sovereign, almighty King of all the ages and you say to Him, I know you have all power, I know you can do all things and yet I bring to you just empty words because I don't truly believe you can do it. That's what we do when we come to Him and pray without faith. And that is appalling to God. That we would pray without faith towards a God who can do anything. So pray in faith. Pray for those loved ones. Pray for those members of the church. Pray for the sick. But pray in faith, recognising that God can do anything. Number six. I'm not going very fast, am I? Number six. Contend for the faith. Jude. The theme of the book of Jude, that really long book with one chapter. This is what the theme is. Beloved. In verse 3, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. We need to contend for it. We need to fight for the faith. We need to fight for its purity. God has given us the Word of God in order that we would fight for the truth, that we would uh, oppose those who deny the faith and deny the truth that's found in the Word of God. We need to contend for the faith. Very important. Let me read you the rest of these and you can ask me for verses later. Number seven, we need to pursue, strengthen and build our faith. We don't sit on it. We seek to grow and build it, increase it and strengthen it. And I have a whole list of verses here. Number eight, cling tightly to the faith. Hold faith, fight for faith. Finish the race, keep the faith, Paul says, 2 Timothy 4, 7. Number nine, persevere in faith. James tells us that uh, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and patience. Persevere in faith. Number ten, testify of your faith. Tell others. Number 11, imitate the faith of others. We're called to do that, particularly of our leaders. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Number 12, second last, do not show partiality. James 2.1 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, there is never to be partiality in the church. Discrimination. Number 13, lastly, and there are so many more, this is just a snapshot. Display the reality of your faith by works. James tells us that faith without works is dead. It's not real. It's not a real thing because faith will work. So much so, Martin Luther was so concerned about this having come from the Roman Catholic position that he wanted James stripped out of the Bible and we can forgive him for that because of his his circumstances around there. But the reality of it is faith that doesn't work is not really faith because faith will have an outworking. If you truly are changed by the Spirit of God, it won't leave you where it found you. It'll change you and there will be works that take place. 
You've been amazing in listening to all of these things. And uh, I thank you for it. First Timothy 4.12. Be an example to the believers. In speech. In conduct. What we do in our love. We talked about that last week. And now in faith. And now in faith. Father, thank you so much for a time in your word. Uh, Lord, there has been just so much data, so much information. And, and Lord, thank you for uh, providing concentration and uh, be, the ability to just focus on these things for this portion of time. I pray, Lord, that uh, the very thing that I have been speaking on, uh, Lord, would be implanted in those who know not uh, the truth of Jesus Christ and that they would exercise that faith in you and be saved. Thank you for the great gift of salvation, the great grace of God and the faith. It's not of works and we cannot boast and we thank you for it. Lord, as Christians increase our faith, we pray, increase our understanding. We know that faith comes by hearing of the word. We've heard it today. We pray that that would further increase our faith, our understanding, our firm persuasion. uh, And that, Lord, in these things you would be honoured and glorified. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.